great. So I'm here with Chris Willard. Um, for people who don't know you, Chris, uh, could you tell us a little bit about you and the role that you do with the FCA? Sure. So uh, my name is Chris Willard. I'm Director of Strategy and Competition here at the FCA. Uh, one of the things that I'm responsible for is our work around innovation and in particular Project Innovate as was and the work that we do today on the Sandbox. So how did you get here? I mean, it seems like a quite a, a paradox that a regulator tends to be that kind of strong, you know, government style organization. And here we've got innovation and digital and the world changing around fintech. Like, how do you find yourself in this role? So I'm not a financial regulator uh, by training, if you like, uh, but I have spent a long time in government and also a long time in, in other regulators as well. So most of my career has been around either Whitehall or previously I was at Ofcom, who's the communications regulator. Uh, did spend a bit of time at the BBC, um, so I've got a sense of possibly uh, the wider use of technology uh, beyond simply financial services. But a lot of my career has been rooted in competition and how do you try Try and use competition to solve some of the problems that consumers might find in markets. So when the FCA was created and it had competition powers for the first time, which is pretty unusual for a financial mm. regulator, uh, that's one of the reasons why I came on board to set that function up, but also to think more broadly about could we use some of those ideas in a financial services setting. And so what are some of the guiding principles, I guess, that you, you set this, this part of the organisation up to, to follow? So we've had some pretty simple principles in terms of how we thought about our innovation work really from the, from the start. The first is many of the people that we're talking to are not traditionally financial services players. Mm -hmm. So we have to make dealing with us really as simple as we can and as for want of a better word, friendly as we can, uh -huh. uh, which is not natural for regulators. I mean, most people, I think back in the outset, when we started back in sort of 2013, were thinking, uh, you know, if I approach the regulator, I'm going to be smothered in red tape. This is not going to be a good experience. And indeed, we saw lots of small startup firms spending a fortune and more importantly, a lot of development time mm. trying to work out how do they avoid regulation mm. when really actually they needed to be regulated both legally but also for many of them growing their business was about being trusted and actually being properly within the, the, the tent as it were. So, so part of this is, can we be simple and easy to, to work with? Second thing is, um, all of this really has been a big experiment for us. Um, and so there is a degree as we go through every stage of this journey of a little bit of build it and will people come, a little bit of putting ourselves out there and seeing what the reaction is. When we've actually got firms talking to us and the ideas that are coming in, we have a really basic underlying principle in all of this, which is, is it in the interest of consumers? Right. So we've seen some fantastic, very clever technological ideas, but when you dig underneath them, actually they're not going to be good in terms of consumer outcomes. In fact, actually they support technologies that we might be very concerned about. So it's not all about the good side of this. You know, there's a there's a role we have to play in protecting uh, the, the wider public we serve. But for the most part, we're saying, right, is it, is it in the interest of consumers? And then when we take that forward, what can we do to help that firm on its journey? How do we get them into the market as a competitor sooner? And then also, how do we think when we come to the sandbox, what's the need to test? So if someone's got a great idea, if someone's tried this before, if it's maybe not the most innovative thing in the world, even though it's very clever, mm. actually, why don't they go straight to market? Mm. But if there's a real role we can play in helping build confidence around the market by using testing, then that's one thing that we, we want to encourage them to do.
So from those principles, and you talk about the sandbox, um, how are those implemented or what were the, the key projects that you really wanted to push forward from the start? So at the start, we started with something we call Project Innovate. We now just call it Innovate for short. And that was really around saying to people, come forward, have you got ideas that would be in the interest of consumers that are innovative, that maybe don't fit very neatly or you don't think fit very neatly with our rule book? And let's look at them. Let's either try and dock them somewhere sensible or we are prepared to change our rules or our approach if needed uh, to make some of these ideas work. So that was the very basic concept we had. What we found quite quickly as we went into that work, though, was there were ideas that were incredibly interesting, but on the edge of innovation, where no one had ever really tried this before anywhere else in the world, where we did not know how products or services might work when they're out there in a real environment. Mm -hmm. And so as a regulator, you face a basic choice, which is yes or no. Mm -hmm. And so we created the sandbox as an idea of let's have a safe space we can test in, mm -hmm. where people can come in, they're fully authorised, so they're fully placed within our rules and all the consumer protections that flow from those, but it's for a test period of usually six months. Mm -hmm. We have the ability to learn from that, and we learn an awful lot from those ideas, but also the firm's testing learn an awful lot from what they do. And then there's a moment where obviously commercially they're going to decide, is this something we want to take to market permanently, in which case we all authorise permanently, uh, as long as they meet all our criteria. And if not, well, actually, it was a test. We tried and, you know, it didn't work. But we have a plan in place for, well, how's that going to then play out and how particularly consumers are involved in those tests, how they're going to be treated. When you put all of that together, I think that gives us the chance to do things that historically, you know, financial regulators would not have done. Mm -hmm. But it also gives us a chance to encourage firms to the market who may just do things that aren't in the norm. And that's mm. what we want to see here. We want to see people who are going to challenge the status quo and think about ways of doing things better. Mm. And this is an industry which has not had, frankly, as much innovation as if you look at telecoms or sure. broadcasting or music or whatever it might yeah. be. And yet the possibilities here could be incredibly interesting. I, and I guess it follows that clinical trials, pharmaceuticals sort of model of innovation is obviously great when you're creating new drugs that can affect millions of people's lives, but equally it could kill millions of people. There's that sort of innovation in a high stakes environment that I guess this fits with. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly pharma trials were a, a sort of one model we looked at here. I mean, Thankfully, most of the time, it's not a matter of life and death, but certainly that sense of let's have a controlled space before this goes mass market mm -hmm. is definitely one of the things sitting behind some of the thinking around the sandbox. So I guess we're three years in now. Is that right? So we're sort of three years into the wider innovation, well, four years in nearly, uh, to the wider innovation journey. Uh, in terms of uh, the work that we've been doing around the sandbox, uh, we're on our fourth cohort, just on our fourth cohort. So we were just under two years. Uh, so tell me about about that. You've um, you've released your sandbox lessons learned report recently. Mm. Like, what are the key messages there? You know, what surprised you, or what's been interesting on that? So what's been interesting is the degree to which the companies that we've seen go through the sandbox actually go to market. Right. So we always thought we would have a degree of people trying things, finding it didn't work, and and dropping out. Mm -hmm. Around 90% of the firms that go into the sandbox actually have now gone to market in that first cohort, which is an incredible kind of conversion rate if you mm -hmm. think about it. Uh, there's a few other things, I suppose. One is we knew that 
the act of testing would allow people to prove their concepts in a much more concrete way than they might otherwise have been able to do. Mm-hmm. And for those who needed uh, venture capital funding, actually they were getting their second, third tranches, and many of them put down the fact that they could tangibly demonstrate mm-hmm. this works. It works in a regulated environment as being one of the reasons why they found it e- much easier to get that VC money in play and to, and to get out into the market. And then I suppose the third thing for me is the degree to which I think our early innovation work was seen about being about fintechs, about small startups, mm. even though we said it wasn't. We said this yeah. is something for everybody. And the degree to which the sandbox has been adopted by some very, very large players in mm. the market as saying, this is a way for us to test things that previously we would not have had the courage to come forward with and do that in a very clearly flagged environment of this being a test. So, so those are the sort of standouts for me. Yeah, I guess those those big incumbents had the most to lose in terms of their license and millions of customers and being seen to do something that that could have an impact, especially in the, I guess, current environment. It's amazing to see actually those players now start to step up and see that this is a, a space for them as well. Yeah, I think it also helps for them. Many of them are working in partnership with much smaller fintech firms, firms that they're finding are useful in terms of being much more agile uh, as partners. And again, I think this just creates a a space in which that kind of collaboration can occur. This episode is sponsored by TopTal. And to find out more about them, we spoke to Jeffrey Fieldman, a TopTal consultant. What TopTal is doing is it's going out and it's finding the absolute top talent in each industry, whether it's designing, whether it's engineering, UX, UI, or in my case, in finance. And then what it's doing is turning around and and offering our services, our collective knowledge to those entrepreneurs in need. Over the past 10, 12 years, I've worked across five or six different industries, starting out in real estate, then in banking, moving into private equity and venture capital. I had worked for HSBC, for Morgan Stanley, and I can honestly say that Interviews at both of those banks were far easier than than a top tell. And and I really say that, although laughing, in all seriousness. So how do top tell match clients and consultants? It turns out it isn't as simple as just matching them. The process is also rigorous. So I need to understand, you know, what is your company? What do you do? Who are you and how did you come to the idea of this company and really understand where this company is going? I'll then try to figure out what are your goals. But it's really an interview both ways. How are different points in my background applicable to this opportunity, to this job, to this engagement, and how am I going to help you solve for your goals? And again, from my perspective, if I feel that there's not much value I can add to you, the client, or to you, the potential client, uh, I'm always upfront and, and will say that right away. I love TopTel as a platform. It really allows me as an individual to apply the skills and apply the information that I've gathered over the past, uh, over my career history, and be able to help entrepreneurs. I think that that's something so visceral and so intimate because you are working with an entrepreneur who is building their company, right? For exclusive access to the top talent in designers, developers, and finance experts, click the link on the show notes or visit toptal.com.
We wanted to let you know that on the 27th of February, our very own David Breer and Sam Moore will square off in a fintech face-off, joined by some very special guests, including Bo Hartman, Richard Davies, Sarah Kachansky, and Bill Sullivan. It'll be Europe versus the US, facing off in a transatlantic debate to decide who's the best for fintech. It'll be live streamed, hosted by Capgemini and LinkedIn. Don't miss out. You can sign up at faceoff.11fs.com to watch the fight and back either side. That's faceoff.11fs.com. Who's going to win? So where next? What happens with, with Sandbox as, a, as the next phase, I guess? So as I said, all along, this has been a bit of an experiment for us. So there's been a degree of trying and testing things. See if they work. If they work, then we do more of them. If they don't, then we, we'll, we'll put them down. But um, the next phase for us really is around, we can see there is demand from a number of firms uh, in the sandbox to think about how we might operate this on a much more global scale than simply the UK. I mean, already around 30 of the applications we've had over the four cohorts come from international players rather than UK players. And what we're looking at is, is there the capability and capacity and the willingness out there to be able to test either in multiple jurisdictions or to perhaps use a UK test but gather information we know our fellow regulators in other jurisdictions will find useful in their own approvals. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we're going to, what we're doing at the moment is really uh, putting out there some ideas that say, is there the appetite amongst a, at least a number of international regulators to, to work with us on this? Mm -hmm. Is there the appetite amongst a number of firms to think about these things as well? And how can we deliver a series of experiments that are really about helping companies grow at real scale mm -hmm. internationally in sort of one big leap rather than having to do it piecemeal as they do today? The other part of our thinking is really where can we begin to see the application of regulatory technology, so-called regtech, mm -hmm in a much wider environment. Um, so there are a number of problems and issues that frankly cross international boundaries. We can work on solutions here, and indeed we've been doing mm. some really interesting work about that. But how do we actually bring our fellow regulators around the world actually into that conversation and begin to work out some solutions that don't just work, for example, for the UK, mm. but might work for the US, for Southeast Asia, you know, wherever it might be. Yeah, I, I guess it's a completely different class of problems when we're looking at, you know, international money transfers and remittances and, you know, multi-country, multi-jurisdiction uh, plays that you would never find in a, in a small, very sort of national stamp, sandbox. Yeah, absolutely. So we are all concerned, for example, about anti-money laundering. We're all concerned about counter-terrorist finance. As you look around the world, Almost every other regulator is too, mm -hmm. yet their way of approaching it is a bit different in every jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And as you say, these, these international plays that cross boundaries, that cross borders, firstly, there's a real issue for them in terms of cost, overhead, friction. But also for us as regulators, there's a real sense of, well, if there's, if it's, things are fragmented like this, actually how effective are some of these controls given the, you know, the, the criminal money flows we're talking about, given the terrorists we're talking about, also operate across borders as well. So how do these conversations start? Uh, I understand you're releasing a paper or have released a paper. So we've released a paper recently on how we think a global sandbox could work. It's at the moment quite a green looking document. What we want to do is engage others in the conversations, not just try and dictate the terms of the conversation. Um, what we'd hope to do is uh, later this year, so later on in the spring, so fairly soon, 
come out and say a little bit more about the direction we think this work is going to go in. But having had the chance to talk to a number of international partners, but also firms who might be interested in taking part. That's great. Tell me a little bit more about RegTech and the analytics, mm. because I guess I'm, I'm fascinated by this area that traditionally, you know, the 50 odd thousand, uh, companies, banks, financial services, players that you regulate mm. have had to submit their regulatory reporting and someone has had that binder of materials to go through. Mm. Obviously, the, the future is very much APIs and data and mm. analytics and machine learning. How does a regulator get to grips with that? So this is a really interesting space for us, um, both in terms of what could it do in terms of cost and efficiency and actually speed of response. Mm -hmm. Uh, because if you think about when we come forward with new rules to deal with new problems, often there's a time lag of at least a year before you can actually get that successfully rolled out into the market. People can actually adjust and mm. build the systems that can cope yeah. with those kinds of things. And this is a world where, particularly with the use of APIs, we could see some really interesting things here where we can make that process much quicker, much slicker, uh, and indeed take an awful lot of cost out potentially. Mm. But I think beyond that, there's a question about how we use analytics to actually do our job better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sometimes when we're looking for misconduct, we are searching for the proverbial needle in the haystack. Mm -hmm. And we do automate systems now. We use technology wherever we can to help us try and do those jobs. But the reality is the advances we've seen in computing in the last few years really give us a chance to do that on a scale that we've never uh, done before. And certainly some of our early experiments in this space are showing us we can identify where the bad guys are much quicker uh, than historically we've been able to do. So, so I think this is a really interesting space for us. And it's not just about us as a regulator understanding how we can use this for ourselves, but also understanding well, what are the implications, some of the moral, some of them uh, conduct base about the growing use of these kinds of technologies in the markets we regulate as well. Mm -hmm. And how do you see PSD2 and open banking sort of fitting into this new marketplace? So I think we're at the start of what is a really interesting journey. So people have talked about this being a revolution. In fact, I think there was a headline I saw that said it's the quietest revolution you've never heard of. <laughs> I think there could be some fundamental change here in the way we think about business models in the future. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're doing a, a much bigger piece of work around uh, looking at retail banking business models, for example. Um, there's definitely the chance to give people much more convenient services, much more value-added services. And we're seeing in a few parts of the world, there are companies out there that are beginning to do that. And we want to see those kind of benefits delivered here in the UK mm -hmm. as well. At the same time, I'd say this is in its infancy. So we've got the interaction of PSD2, we've got GDPR, we've got the open banking work that the CMA uh, put into the market. And I think one of the things over the next couple of years is seeing how we can evolve that and make it work in a much more kind of joined up way, uh, both for the benefit of uh, those who want to enter the market, those who want to become challenges in this space, but also frankly for consumers. And, you know, there's the whole host of security and data issues that, that flow around this. But I think we would see this both as a set of risks and challenges that need to be addressed, but also, frankly, there's a, there's a really big set of opportunities here if we can get this right. So I guess there are lots of changes that are hitting the FCA itself, both in terms of culture, I guess, size and, and tool sets and processes. Uh, how do you grow and develop that, that organization when, you know, a lot of the banks within, you know, a stone's throw are struggling with, with that kind of culture change themselves? 
So I think there's two points to the question, really. I mean, one is definitely the culture change. How do you move from a very traditional regulatory mindset, particularly in financial services, which is often geared about how do I deal with the risks? Mm. And how do we think about two things, really? Firstly, harm. So actually, when we take the market as a whole, how do we see not only the risks of dealing with challenges to current business models, but also the risks if we don't deal with those things? Um, and the work that we've done as the FCA around our mission is about trying to define that space much better for those we regulate and indeed for those who we hold us to account. So how do we shift mindset from simply seeing the negative side of risks into how do we shift a mindset to say, well, what happens if we don't do something here? Mm. Second thing is the degree to which we're prepared to experiment. I mean, we know that effectively there is a degree to which as regulator, our credibility, uh, a little bit of our brand, if you like, mm. we think of ourselves really as having a brand, but that reputation definitely is wrapped up in how do these projects work? Do, is there a success made here of the innovations that we see in the sandbox and our wider innovation work? Mm. Now, so far, we've worked with nearly 500 firms. Um, Inevitably, one of something's going to go wrong somewhere in that landscape. Mm. There's just too many people and too many actors that yeah. there won't be something going wrong. And so the real test for us is, well, what do we do when those things happen? And how do we treat that as sort of business as usual and move on and accept those kinds of risks? I think if I look at some colleagues around the world, that's probably one of the things that weighs most heavily on their mind when they when they get into this kind of innovation space. Mm. And, and indeed, it weighs on ours. Um, it's, it, it's, it requires a degree of bravery to get into, into these kind of things. But I think the alternative, frankly, of not engaging in this, of not trying to open up markets to greater competition and innovation, actually the cost to the public of not doing that is huge, but hidden. And I guess that's one of the benefits of starting to bring regulators together to address this or at least to have those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the degree to which we want to work in collaboration with our international colleagues around this agenda um, is is really, I think, a defining part of this process for us. Um, we've already got a number of international bridge-type agreements with with countries such as Australia, with uh, Canada, with, with, with a whole range of others. We'd like to build on those and grow on those. And I think the more we can agree a, a degree of international consensus around this of what does good innovation look like, mm. are we all trying to work here in the interests of consumers rather than sort of racing to the bottom? Mm. Um, then those kinds of protections will help this industry grow because it is going to be increasingly, I think, a global industry. Mm. The business models we see often are about get a good idea in one country, take it to another, as opposed to growing sort of horizontally in the same country. Yeah. And this is a space where we know from experience if one person catches a cold, everybody sneezes. So, you know, the credibility and the success of the firms in this sector really does rely on regulators working as closely together as they can. That's fascinating. Thanks so much for coming to talk to us, Chris. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.